off by saying um, an admission that I'm a little nervous up here um, at Grace Fellowship. We, um, we, we pride ourselves off of we have very good teaching that comes from the pulpit. And so um, today I'll be um, teaching t- uh, alongside and, and um, behind many men who have come to this pulpit and have teached very good sermons. So um, anyway, I just wanted to, to say that um, this Advent season we've been going through um, this song by Sovereign Grace. The song itself is not um, holy writ. It's not um, God himself has not inspired the song, but the song we believe is based off of biblical truth. And so when you read through the song, you sing through it, right? He who is mighty has done a great thing, um, taken on flesh, conquered destiny, shattered the darkness, and lifted our shame. And so today we'll be going through lifted our shame. Um, this Advent season has been a really big blessing for me. I hope it has been for y'all, learning about the work of Christ, him coming in the flesh. Um, it's really blessed me. Um, and so uh, before we get into it today, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I pray that this message would go forth and go into the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray that we would see our need for you. We would see our brokenness in our sin and our shame. Lord, and I pray that as a people, we would see our need for our shame to bring us to repentance and faith. Lord, be with us during this time. Amen. So, again, like I said, during this time, we've gone through the song from Sovereign Grace, how Christ has taken on flesh. Um, What a beautiful truth. We've just celebrated it uh, this past Christmas. Um, And so we celebrate that Christ has actually taken on flesh. The God of all eternity has condescended, and he has taken on the form of humanity. Philippians chapter 2 says... And I think these are some of the most beautiful words in all the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2 says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That's the God we worship. That's the God we worship today, right? The God of all eternity has come down and he has taken on flesh. He's taken on our form. That's the God we worship today. And that is the Christ that we preach. We've learned from Carlton that Christ has not only taken on flesh, but he's conquered death's sting. And we've learned from Carlton last week That we are to walk in the light as Christ is the light. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. These are beautiful, beautiful truths. So Christ has conquered destiny, he shattered the darkness, and we see when you're reading through these truths, Christ has also lifted our shame. Now I want to take a moment and think about these, these four things that we've gone through. What all do they have? What all is necessary for these truths to be true? There's a precondition necessary for these very truths to be true. 
So, we see that Christ has taken on flesh, and after this, right, he has conquered death's sting. So what's the precondition that is necessary for Christ to conquer death's sting? It means that death had a sting. It means that death had a sting. And Christ has taken away that sting. The whole precondition that is necessary is that death was actually a foe that we all face. And that Christ has taken it and defeated it. He's conquered it. In the same way, we see that Christ has shattered the darkness. So what is necessary for Christ to shatter the darkness? It means that darkness is real. We all have darkness in the recess of our own hearts. And Christ has shattered that darkness. And now we can walk in the light as Christ is in the light. So this leads us to our message today about Christ lifting our shame. What's necessary for Christ to lift our shame? It means we all have shame. It means we all have shame. It's not like some of us, we got a camp over here where, oh, no, 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 we don't have shame. We've sinned, but, but we, don't have, we don't feel shameful over it. We don't actually have shame. We're not, we're not unworthy before God. We all have shame. And apart from Christ, you'll be eternally shameful. And so, we have all inherited our shame since the fall in the garden. We've inherited it from Adam. And so, today, before we get into our text, I want to give us a reason why we all experience shame. Because we legitimately do have shame as, a, as humanity. And so, but before we do that, I want to give a definition, a proper working definition of shame. Right? So if you go to Oxford Languages, you'll see, like, you click on the first definition, right? And it says, um, right here, it says, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Now, while I do think this definition is okay, I don't think it's enough, right? So this one says that it's a painful feeling of humiliation. And I do think, yes, as humanity, we do feel the weight of our shame. We do feel it, but I don't think it goes far enough. So if you go on Google, you type in shame, the definitions will pop up. You click down, and there's like, eight definitions of shame. So I read through all of them. And uh, the seventh definition, the first and seventh, I think, if you put them together, um, I think they actually work. And so the seventh definition says, a person, action, or situation that brings a loss of respect or honor. So while I do think that, yes, you do feel, you legitimately feel the weight of your shame, I think the seventh definition puts us kind of positionally before God. And it says that you are shame before God. You are shameful before God apart from Christ. And so I want to go to Genesis 3 and talk about, you don't have to turn there, but I just want to go through the story and talk about how in the garden, Adam created, or God created Adam and Eve. And he created them upright. And so... God told Adam and Eve, he said, be, fruit, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And he said, he said, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds over the air and over every living creature that moves on the face of the earth. 
God created Adam and Eve, and he told him to keep the earth, work it, and keep it. And God says, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And so we see that Adam and Eve were naked before one another. And the scriptures literally say they were naked and they were not ashamed. This was a world that was without sin. They were naked before one another and they were not ashamed of their nakedness before themselves or before God. And so this brings us to Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent comes in. He tempts Eve. Eve goes to Adam They eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And the scriptures say in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 7, it says, Both of their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked. And then what did they do? They tried to hide from God. They tried to flee from God. They knit together fig leaves to hide their nakedness, and then they tried to hide from God himself. And this is what we do as a people. This is what we do. We have shame. We're exposed before God, and we try to knit together little fig leaves and hide from him. And so I think it's obvious as a people, as humanity, I think you can see in the world today not necessarily in the Christian church, but I think it's easy to look at the world today and see shame. So, for example, we go to the abortion clinics and we preach to the women going in and we ask them, please, please don't go through with this. We will help you. We're offering them hope. We're offering to help them financially. We're offering to do whatever we can do. We will adopt their children. We're offering to do whatever we can do as long as they don't walk through those doors and murder their child. And you've got these people, they call themselves escorts, escorts of death. And so we have about 15 seconds from the time the woman gets out of her car to the time she goes into the building, we have about 15 seconds to preach the gospel to her and tell her, we can help you. And we're coming in the name of Jesus Christ to help you. But these women, these escorts, They have umbrellas, and they'll open up their umbrellas, and they'll get beside the women, and they'll talk to them. They'll be really close. We can't obviously get on their property. And so the women have these umbrellas, and they're walking next to these women, holding the umbrellas so that the truths of God cannot make it into the ears of the women going into the clinic to do what they're going to do. And I think these umbrellas are a perfect physical representation and modern representation of shame today. They don't want God's truth being proclaimed to these women, and they hide them from the very truths of God. And I think sometimes, even as Christians, when we are shameful before our God, I think we wish somebody would walk around with an umbrella with us. I think we wish somebody would open the umbrella because we have been in our sin and somebody would open the umbrella and walk around with us so that no one has to see us. No one has to see what we've been doing. So, if you go on Google and you look up shame, you'll see all sorts of websites that pop up. Five steps to getting over your shame. 
seven tips and tricks to help you with your shame, you know? You'll see these videos of these PhDs, these women with PhDs, men and women who have psychology degrees, sitting around a round table talking about shame, its effects, and how to get over it. And not a single time are they talking about Christ. As a culture, we try to flee simply the things that don't feel good. As a culture, sometimes we just go, this doesn't feel good. So let me go learn these five tips and tricks, and maybe I can like, work up this little like, reason to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't feel shame anymore. These five tips and tricks, they actually worked. Here, here's this website. Try it out. You have shame? Here's these five tips and tricks. But the call of the Christian is not to just be happy all the time. We do have shame as a people. We sin before a holy God. There is a reason to put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn over our sin. That leads, that's what leads us into today's text. The text that we're going to get into today is Psalm 51. So you can turn there now. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David after he's committed his sin before God of murder and adultery. So David has been anointed king of Israel. And David has been conquering pagan lands, plundering them, and Israel is becoming a great nation. And the time of year comes, the scriptures say the time of year comes that the king goes off to battle. And then the scriptures say, but David stayed home. So it was a time of year that kings usually go off to battle. David's been plundering the land. He boasts in his pride, and he stays home to let his men go and fight. And so David just happens to go up to his rooftop at a time of day when Bathsheba just happened to be bathing on her rooftop. And David just happened to see her bathing. And so he gets one of his servants, and he says, go and get Bathsheba and bring her here. He brings her there, and he seduces her. And then he sends her home, and she is pregnant with David's child now. So David, thinking that he can flee from his sin before God, has said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring home Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and I'm going to have him come and lay with her so that the child that she's pregnant with, I know it's my child, but Uriah will think, and all of Israel will think, it's actually Uriah's baby. And so David brings Uriah home. Uriah's a godly man. He knows the law of God. His men are off to battle. He's not going to go be with his wife. His men can't be with his wife, so he won't be with his wife. So he goes to David. David's telling him to go home. Go home. Go home and see Bathsheba. Uriah won't do it. And so David, again, piling his sin on one on top of another, gets Uriah drunk, thinking that we get Uriah drunk, he'll go be with his wife, right? Right? Uriah, still being a godly man, slept on David's doorstep that night because he wouldn't go be with his wife. So David had no other option in his mind. Not, not repentance, right? 
So he sends Uriah back out on the battlefield at the very front of the battle, and he commands his army. He says, let Uriah go forth and then draw the army from him so that he may be slain on the battlefield. He murdered him. By his command, he murdered Uriah. And this angered the Lord. The scriptures say that this angered the Lord. And so God sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, David, there's this poor man. He's got a lamb. And he's raised this lamb his whole life. His children have been with this lamb his whole life. And it's all he has. And this lamb is like a daughter to him. And he says, but there was a rich man in the village, and a traveler was coming in. And as the traveler comes in, he doesn't want to go to one of his own flock and slaughter one of his own lambs for the traveler. So the rich man, who has all his flock, goes to the poor man, steals his lamb, slaughters it, prepares it for the traveler, and they feast on the poor man's lamb. And David is angered at this. And he says, I would put that man to death and I would show no pity. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. Leaving David with nothing to say, he falls on his knees and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's what leads us into today's text. This is a psalm, Psalm 51. is a psalm of David after he's committed this sin and he's been called out by the prophet Nathan. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me the wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I think... This psalm is a beautiful picture of the way we should feel before God, the way we often do feel before God, and God's faithfulness to his people. There's a quote by Thomas Watson 
that I think is beautiful. There's a book called Gleanings, and it's a bunch of quotes by Thomas Watson. He was a very quotable man, not, probably not as quotable as Spurgeon. Um, but Watson was also really quotable, and he said, God does not find us worthy, but makes us worthy. If we never come to Christ to be healed until we are worthy, we must never come. So, in this passage, David is totally broken over his sin. We see what our hearts should look like. We can't get into all of it. Sorry, Bruce. Um, I know that you like uh, verse by verse, three verses at a time. We're going to go through the whole psalm today. Um, So we can't get into all of it, but let's go to the text. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice here how David is appealing to God's own character in his prayer. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He is appealing to God and who God is. I think we have the tendency to look at ourselves and go, I've done these good things this week. I've tithed. I've given more than I usually give. I helped that person out so that these sins can be covered because these good works that I've done have covered those. I'm doing okay. But David doesn't do that. David says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He appeals to God, God's goodness, and based on his character, he says, blot out my transgressions. According to your character, blot out my transgressions and wash me clean from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is our call as Christians. This is our call. We know we have sinned before God, and according to him and his mercy, we should cry out. Do you ever weep over your sin? Cry out to God where you sit. God, blot out my transgressions. This is the life and the call of the believer. And this is the call to the unbeliever. Cry out to God. He continues in verse 4. I'm sorry, I lost my place. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inner being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Before, in this context, means, I think sometimes we think of before as timeline. Before means in front of me. My sin is ever in front of me. That's what he's saying. It will never go away. It has hurt me, and I will not forget it. He continues to say, against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to God and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be blameless in your judgment. Again, he speaks of God's own character. His sin shows that God is blameless. God is perfect, and he is not. It magnifies God. He says, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight against you. You only have I sinned. Have you ever, have you ever been so broken over your sin that you look to God and you say, God, I have sinned against you and only you? 
He doesn't say, I've sinned against Uriah, who I murdered, or Bathsheba, who I seduced. He said, God, I sinned against you, because who are Uriah and Bathsheba? They're simply instruments in the hands of a holy God. Don't go grab your fig leaves, Christian. Don't try to hide from God. David has been exposed here. He says, blot out my iniquity so that you may be justified. Don't run and hide. Don't go grab your seven tips and tricks to get rid of your shame. Run to Christ who can take it away. Run to Jesus Christ. Cry out to him in your nakedness. God sees your sin. Do you feel naked before a holy God? Because you are. And cry out to him and he will clothe you. He goes on to say, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isaiah 1 has language at this point. Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, this is God saying this, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. We all have stains. We all have stains before God. And God says, though your sins are like scarlet stains, they shall be white as snow. When he exposes you, flee into his arms. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. David says this in Psalm 51. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. It was God who broke David. It was God himself who broke David. I think a lot of times today in the Christian church, we would like to think, God didn't break David. God is only love. I'm telling you, God broke David because he's love. God broke David because he loves him. God's the one who sent the prophet Nathan to say, you are that man, David. He had been caught and found out. Break your bones over your sin, Christian. It is God who does the work. And then it says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Rejoice. We can rejoice in the bones that God has broken. God breaks us so that we can flee into his arms and rejoice in the salvation that he has given us. He's broken us so that we may be healed. David continues in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God. He is begging God to change his heart. Those of you who are in the college ministry with me probably know exactly where I'm about to go. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, keep one finger in Psalm 51 and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 24. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. We have a God who has promised to take our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh, sprinkle clean water on us, and cause us to walk in his statutes. Back to Psalm 51, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's a very real sense when we're in sin before a holy God, our joy before him will diminish. It may be that we've sinned before God and our joy before him is gone, totally gone. Cry out to God and say, return to me the joy of your salvation. God, I don't have any joy, but your salvation brings it. Restore it to me. He continues in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It is the heart of the sacrifice that God will not despise. I think sometimes as Christians, especially in our camp here, we like to pursue knowledge, which is a great thing. But you've probably seen it. You've got the person who pursues the knowledge, they try to learn as much as the greatest theologians you've ever ever read. They try to know as much as they possibly can and their heart has been disconnected from God. They grow callous to God in their pursuit for knowledge instead of letting the knowledge that they're learning from these great men who let their hearts be affected from God and then chose to learn about God They choose to learn about God and forget about their heart. 
don't go callous, but rather let these truths that you're reading form your heart. Let your heart be molded. In this passage, in verses 18 and 19, David goes on to say that he will offer burnt offerings and that he will offer whole burnt offerings and he will offer bulls. And God will delight in those sacrifices. We need to realize today, as you're listening to this message, you're not a Christian because it's the culturally appropriate thing to do. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christian. You're a Christian because God has changed your heart. In the same way in ancient Israel, you had the nation of Israel and you had a remnant in Israel. And you had the nation of Israel, a little boy comes up to his dad and says, Dad, on Yom Kippur, he says, Dad, why are we taking this lamb? It's all we have. This lamb is all we have. It's, it's the most valuable thing we own. Why are we taking this lamb? And the dad says, well, our forebears did it and our fathers did it, so we're going to go do it today. And then you have the family where the kid comes up to his father and he says, Dad, why are we taking this lamb? And the dad sits down with his son and he says, Son, we have a God who is so close to us, who is so near to us that we can actually offer sacrifices to him and they are a pleasing aroma. The second one is a pleasing aroma to God. The first one never took away anyone's sins. The second one was focused on the promise that will come. So what does this mean for us today as Christians as we wrap up? Our call today with faith and trust in Christ is to believe on him and trust in his promises. Christ came and lived a perfect life and bore the cross for our sins. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? Our call is to trust in Christ who can take away our shame. Christ tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. They go into the temple to pray, and the, the Pharisee goes into the temple and he says, God, I thank you. That's, that's pretty pious, isn't it? He says, God, I thank you. Then he says that I am not like the others. I tithe of all that I have. I fast twice a week. I thank you, God, that I am not like the others. And you have the tax collector behind him who won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus in that parable says that the tax collector went home justified. And the Pharisee did not and it also says, he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. 
I know we've gone through a lot today about David and his sin and shame before God, but I'm also here to tell you that Christ has taken away the shame that we all have. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve made their own garments of fig leaves. They hid from God, and what did God do? He pulled them from their hiding place and slaughtered an animal and clothed them. He put clothes on their nakedness. It was God who did it. He redeemed their fallen place. And God goes on in the passage to say that there will be one who will come and he will crush the head of the serpent that deceived you. In Revelation chapter 3, we hear these words starting in verse 18. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. We have a God who promises to take away our shame, who promises to clothe us in our nakedness. He has slaughtered the spotless lamb, and we are washed clean by the blood of that sacrifice. My whole point in telling you all of this today is to run to Christ. Run to Jesus Christ, who can clothe you in your shame. Christ says that he will be lifted up and he will draw all men to himself. And that passage says that he was prophesying of the way that he was going to die. Christ was carrying his cross to Calvary. The scripture said it was a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And if you were there in that day and you were looking at Christ, hanging on that cross, you would have seen Christ's cross piercing the skull. Putting to death, death itself, our guilt and our shame. And he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Don't go and hold on to the very things that Christ hung on that tree for. Don't go pick it back up. He's taken it away. And you're a born-again believer. And the call from our shame is to look to Christ who can lift it. And he has given us an inheritance. As Peter writes, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved for you in heaven. So as we close today, I just want to read a passage. Hear these words and believe them. Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Corey is now going to come, and we can respond to this message um, by taking part in the Lord's Supper.